All right, if you're a little one, I think the youth will be staying with us in service this morning. And, uh, but anyone below that, your time to dismiss. Thank you for being here, and uh, I feel completely, this is going to get in my way pretty soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being here this morning, and um, our pastor is, uh, I believe, in the great state of Texas, and he is at a, speaking at a conference uh, over marriage uh, there, so he will be back uh, sometime either tomorrow morning or Sometime late tonight, so appreciate your prayers for him as he ministers there with uh, those folks. Uh, so I'll be stepping in him uh, in for him this morning, and um, want to speak to you today just on a, a couple of things. I've got some uh, some things written down. I've got a lot to cover. I'm going to try to squeeze that in into uh, a time frame here, but um, I'd like to um, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started in Romans chapter 8 and uh, kind of work our way through some passages of Scripture there. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, we count it a privilege uh, to be able to gather together as your people. Uh, we are every day in desperate need of your spirit, of your guidance, of your protection, and uh, you tell us that we live and breathe and have our being in you. Help us not to take for granted the very breath that we take and that our life is wrapped up in you. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. I ask you, Lord, to, uh, as we look at some things this morning out of the book of Romans, that you would open up our hearts, our minds. Uh, may I be able to communicate the truth of what's contained in your word. And may those words have impact into our lives uh, as we live our lives every day. And uh, thank you for um, all that you do for us. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible um, or an e-Bible or just words on the screen or whatever you might have, I do invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, and I uh, want to spend some time uh, talking with you from despair to destiny, despair to destiny. And there's basically five things that I want to cover uh, with you uh, from the text, okay? So I want to read it first, and you can certainly follow along with me, and I would encourage you to do so. And um, spend uh, some time looking at what we're going to be talking about. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. That's encouraging right off the start, isn't it? Right off. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies that He has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something that we don't have, 
we must wait for it patiently and confidently. Verse 26 continues, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having Given them right standing, he gave them his glory. A little bit of a lengthy passage, but uh, we need to going to cover all of this today. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't take long. If you watch the news, if you read the newspaper, if you listen to talks or radio, whatever it is, it doesn't take long to figure out the world's in a tough shape right now. Things are not going well. And this passage in the book of Romans chapter 8 covers that very issue and it's kind of interesting that there's three, there's three, well, there's one word that occurs three times, but it's a common theme among all of it. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but it's the word groaning or groan. And every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned one in the creation groans, mankind groans, and even the Holy Spirit of God groans. It's a common idea. And I want to expand that because, uh, you know, News can get pretty rough sometimes. We watch things happen. We don't understand why uh, things occur in our lives, either in society or in our lives personally. The fact is, there's a lot of groaning taking place in this world. So I want to begin in verse 19 through 22, looking at the groaning of creation for a few minutes, because all these components are going to be really important by the time we get to the end of this to understand the real promise that's in Romans 8.28 and 8.29. So let's begin discussing uh, just for a few minutes the idea of the groaning of creation. What is that about? What is that about? And if you look back at verse 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now watch this close in verse 20. Against its will, that's the will of, of the creation itself, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Verse 22, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What an odd thing. What an odd thing. You know, the, the verse seems to indicate that there is a unique awareness within the created order that words cannot explain. There seems to be something within creation that knows that the things that are going on within creation itself is not right, and it was subjected to the curse of man. And somehow there seems to be an awareness within creation itself. Perhaps it's just the use of metaphorical language, but it seems that there is a certain quality of life within creation that recognizes that it is incapable of functioning 
as originally designed before the fall. Before the fall. And it's in a state of groaning. Day in, day out. Sunrise, sunset, the creation groans. We have grown together, or what the groaning is about, because it's, um, it has the idea of grown together, or grown uh, jointly, and experience a common calamity, is the idea of the groaning. In other words, there's not one certain part of creation that groans. All of creation, all of it together, has experienced the curse from Genesis chapter 3, and it's all over creation, not just one part of it. It's all experienced the common calamity in all of creation, whether it's the, the mountains, the skies, the seas, the land, all of it, all of it was touched by the curse in Genesis 3. Not one part of creation was exempt from it, and that's the common calamity when it says that the creation itself groans. At the fall of man, recorded in Genesis 3, mankind was not the only recipient of the, of the curse that was caused by his rebellion. And a lot of people think that, well, man was cursed, and that's true, but it's much broader than that. All of creation was also cursed at the same time. And this is what Paul brings out in, in Romans chapter 8, uh, making us aware of the degree and the depth of what sin has done. Now, I think it's an interesting parallel to the idea of Genesis 3. And we spend a moment just to, to go back to that passage there. In the garden, and Adam and Eve have committed their uh, disobedience to the Lord. And the Lord is dealing with them one at a time. And then in verse 17 of Genesis 3, And to the man, which is Adam, he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. And watch what happens here. God says, The ground is cursed because of you. Creation will no longer function the way that it was designed to function because of what you have done. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle. You will struggle to scratch a living from it. The days of being able to walk up to a tree, just pluck the fruit off the tree and enjoy it, and the, the food source was constant, it was available, and God says, now the ground, you're going to have to scratch a living from the ground because it will no longer function the way it was designed to because of what has happened. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat, its, uh, eat of its grains. Verse 19 of the chapter 3, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you So there's where creation become cursed under the touch of sin itself when man re uh, rebelled in the garden. Now, with that in mind, that's the overall idea of what the curse is regarding creation. And it groans. It doesn't like being in the situation that's been placed because of man's sin. And it has been affected. So let's look real quickly at the creation's condition as a result of this fall in, in the, from Romans chapter 8. It makes the phrase, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. So the curse has affected all the created order. The metaphysical laws that govern our world has been corrupted by sin. You do realize that there is a system of laws throughout all of creation that govern the way this universe functions. And all of those laws that we never see have been now altered and changed and interrupted from its normal course of action to, a, to, a, to unpredictability and the metaphysical world. 
And these laws no longer operate as they did before the fall, thus producing things like natural disasters, from earthquakes to tsunamis, from hurricanes to volcanic eruptions, famines and floods, and all of these, if you've noticed, with increasing activity and intensity. If you've watched the news, it seems like some natural disaster happens all the time now. If you saw uh, just recently some people in California uh, just enjoying the beach, and part of the cliff literally fell off, fell apart. And I think three or four people died from that. Not to mention all the, the, the fires and everything that goes on, but it seems like that creation is in an upheaval, and it's getting more and more, and the intensity of all the natural disasters are getting worse and worse. Uh, let me give you a caveat here. I am not a physical science person, okay? So I'm, I don't want to promote myself as something I'm not, but I do find it interesting that there is a connection between man's sin and the decay of the universe. They are connected. They're not mutually exclusive. So consider the second law of thermodynamics. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? The second law of thermodynamics, which is one of the most fundamental laws of nature, having profound implications. Listen to this closely, what the second law of the, uh, of the thermodynamics says. In essence, it says this. The level of disorder in the universe is steadily increasing. Did you get that? The level of disorder in the universe is steadily increasing. Systems, the metaphysical world, the metaphysical laws, the systems tend to move from ordered behavior to more random behavior. Nature's becoming unpredictable more and more. It's the second law of thermodynamics. You see it every day, every day. That's, uh, that's the condition right now of creation in which it's in. I want to look at the, uh, don't want to leave it there because there is creation's hope. And that's what I really want you to, to, uh, to rest in today because when things look pretty bad, there's a great hope that goes over all of it, okay? God does not leave us hopeless. No matter where we are or what we're doing, either creation or ourselves, there's going to be hope. So here's creation's hope. Notice the emphasis on the future tense of the phrases when it talks about the creation, the future tense. So God doesn't leave us in the immediate. He has us looking on down the road saying it's not always going to be like this. And that's what we have to grab onto. For instance, notice the future tense in the passage when it says, for creation waits with eager longing. That's future tense. There's coming a time when the nature of creation, how it works, is going to change, and God's going to set it back in place again the way that it was. Creation waits with eager longing. Another future tense idea in that is, and what it's waiting for is kind of unique. It's his waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. There's something unique that even creation knows that we are not supposed to be the way we are. And there was a unique relationship in the garden before the fall between creation itself and mankind. They worked together. There was great enjoyment of how things existed before the fall. And even creation knows that pretty soon, pretty soon, that the revealing of the sons of God and the creation itself is looking forward to that event. Another future tense idea from those passages, creation itself will be, and that's the future tense part, will be set free. Creation itself will be set free. That's creation's hope. 
and it's aware of this, and it knows that the day is coming when it can be back and a blessing to mankind as it once was. Now, I don't want to pass over verse 22 of this passage without noticing the unique connection back to Genesis 3.16. So if you're looking at verse 22 in Romans 8, look at what it says. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, don't lose that idea of the idea of groaning as in the pains of childbirth. This is what creation feels. But look at Genesis 3.16 as a parallel to this. Genesis 3.16 says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. It's an interesting parallel to that. The creation, the pain creation endures is not without hope. It leads to something good. The pain of childbirth is one pain a woman can look forward to, not because of the pain, but because it brings a child into the world. And it makes the pain bearable. And in a similar way, the groaning of creation precedes the giving of birth to a new age that's coming. And creation knows this. And it, it, it just is in the, the pains of childbirth, the idea that pretty soon a new creation is going to be here and the old creation will no longer be the way it is. It's giving birth to a new creation at the hands of the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones has some uh, unique insight on this, uh, on this passage. I'd like to share it with you regarding creation. He says, nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation. All the buds on the trees, flowers blooming, birds chirping, and it's trying to produce a perfect creation to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year, but unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring only leads to summer, and summer leads to autumn, and autumn back into the wintertime. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it, but it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together until now. It has been doing so for a very long time. But nature still repeats the effort annually. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Interesting insight that even in nature, it tries to make things new again. And, and new growth happens and the temperature gets better. And coming out of the wintertime, there's hope. And then it gets a little bit too hot. And then we move into the wintertime and it's all over again. And it cycles cycles over and over as if creation is trying to put forth something that it can't see god's creation was made with purpose and design with purpose and design it worked in perfect unity with adam and eve before the fall but since the curse the relationship that creation had with mankind has been severed 
been severed. Sometimes it almost seems that we are enemies with nature. Nature sends out its powerful natural disaster forces that just devastate societies and, and civilizations and people. And then we turn around and we just destroy some parts of nature as if we don't care for it at all. We have a disdain for it. And God says, this is my creation and you care not for it? Sometimes it seems that we work against each other, mankind and creation, but it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. Nature can't be what it was designed to be. It can't fulfill its reason for existing. And creation longs for the day to be back in perfect creational unity with man. This is true. As you look outside and you see trees and you see the life that's out there in creation, all of it, all of it, somehow is longing for the day that it will change and not be this way. Find its purpose again and its design that God intended for. So that's the groaning of creation in the book of Romans that Paul is talking about. It seems like there's not a lot of hope there, you know? It's just cycling over and over again. But now let me move on to the other part of groaning, and that's the groaning of Christians. The groaning of believers, those who have their faith in Christ, Paul speaks to that group as well. So we move from the groaning of creation, now we're moving into the groaning of Christians in verses 23 through 25. So let's look back at the text here. And we believers also groan, also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too, that's in reference to just like creation, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies that He has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something that we don't have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So if you are in Christ this morning and you are a believer and you're in Him, you understand this, don't you? You understand the groaning that takes place in your own heart, in your own mind, and it gets frustrating, doesn't it? Just as creation was subjected to God's curse, all mankind also has been corrupted by sin. So believers who have their faith in Christ have been redeemed, but we are still subject to live in a cursed world where things do not work right. And in an earthly body that constantly battles with sin, and that one day will face death. Because of this, Christians also groan inwardly. Let me give you um, uh, the, the term for groaning. It's just a little different from the groaning of creation. And it's different in this way from the groaning of Christians. In this situation here, we're talking about to groan or to sigh with sorrow. Have you ever experienced something that's frustrating? And you just kind of go, <sighs> okay, you understand. Is a sense of sighing, a deep sorrow that just is born in frustration and comes forth. It's the groanings 
or sighings of a person trapped in undesirable or inescapable circumstances. That's why I enjoy that song periodically, I'll fly away. You know, I'll fly away. Or the other old gospel psalm, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You feel that? That's the groaning that we look forward to. That's the knowledge and the understanding that, that we also, as creation, we're not the way that we're supposed to be originally. What sin has done to us. So let me kind of give you a sense of what this is about and, and how the life that we live, and let me go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Solomon, the wisest man outside of Christ himself to ever live. Let me tell you what, uh, what he says about the futility and the frustration that you and I have in this world. In Ecclesiastes 1.13, he says, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. And I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. It's in reference to the curse. He discovers that. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 18 the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Be careful about, uh, you know, becoming too smart, okay? Because when you do, you're going to raise more questions, and it's going to bring in more frustrations, and the answers oftentimes are unanswerable. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. He continues, So I came to hate life. This is a man who had untold wealth, untold wisdom, blessings of God. If anyone should have enjoyed life, you would think it would be Solomon, right? And yet he says, I came to hate life. I hate getting up in the morning. I hate going to bed at night, and I hate everything in between. Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like a chasing the wind. I gave up in despair. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 20. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Go out, work hard, eight to five, work overtime, even work Saturday sometimes, try to make a good living for my family, produce income, and all I get for is despair, despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. What good is it? What does it change? Does it change me? No. No. Ecclesiastes 22, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 22 and 23 the last of the Ecclesiastes passage, okay? You can get pretty depressing if you stay there long enough. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days are labor, the, the days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. I bet you if I ask you in the congregation here, 
How many of you stayed awake last night because you had something on your mind that's bothering you? Or you woke up at 2 in the morning thinking of something that's coming up the next day. Don't raise your hands because I know probably most of them would go up. Don't you hate that? You wake up just like that in the middle of the night and something's on your mind and you can't go back to sleep and there's a level of frustration. Well, that's, uh, that's the way it works. That's, that's, part, uh, that's part of the, uh, the groaning of Christians. Their days are of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. This is the world we live in. This is the effect of what's happened to you and I. This causes groanings for us. We want something different, but we can't make it happen. We want to go a new way. We want to take control of things only to find out we can't control those things. What other people do, we can't control that, but yet has an influence and an impact on us. It changes what we have to do. And we go to bed at night frustrated. We go through the days frustrated. That's the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to consider Romans chapter 7. You don't have to go back one chapter, but in verse 18 through 24, not going to read all of it, but just portions of that. And I want you to listen closely to the struggle of the Apostle Paul. And this is what Paul he senses the, uh, of his own self in this idea of what sin and the struggle. This is what Paul says. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. Watch this closely. I want to do what is right. I want to do what is right, but I can't. That's frustrating too, isn't it? I want to do what is good, but I don't. I know every one of us understands that. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Do you find yourself in a situation? In your heart, in your mind, you really have the desire to do the right things, and you wind up on the wrong side of the coin, don't you? So do I. It's a struggle that's not unique to you. It's a struggle that every believer in Christ has to go through, even the Apostle Paul. And then he says this statement about himself. Oh, what a miserable person I am. And he asks this rhetorical question. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I am tired. I am weary of this battle and the struggle day after day after day. And he groans. <sighs> Again. He groans. And then frustration sets in. Doesn't seem to be much hope there, does it? Well, there's another groaning that's mentioned also. <clears throat> I want to bring to your attention. In verses 26 and 27, and that's the groaning of the Spirit. It's a unique thing. This is the Spirit of God. Even says that He groans. Listen to verse 26. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us, watch this now, with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads 
for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Isn't that something? That even the Spirit of God groans. Let me kind of give you the definition of the groaning of this idea because it's a little different from the one about the groaning of Christians. It's closely together, but there's a subtle difference in this. Remember, the groaning of creation is talking about the groaning together or jointly or experiencing the same calamity. All of creation is in that situation. When it comes to the groaning of Christians, there was this deep sigh just to groan, being felt that you're in a situation that you can't get out of. But the groaning of the Spirit is very similar but yet uniquely different. It also means to groan or to sigh, but there's an inward unexpressed feeling of sorrow and it's translated with grief, with grief. So here's the deal. See, the Holy Spirit of God looks at us as believers and God's Spirit knows what we should be. And it grieves the heart of the Holy Spirit of God to watch us struggle through life. And it breaks his heart. And he groans because he doesn't want us to have to live and put up with a cursed life that we have to go through. And it grieves him. And it causes the Holy Spirit of God himself to groan, not for himself, but for us. His grief is reflected. The depths of the Spirit's grief is reflected in the phrase, groanings that cannot be expressed in words. It's a really deep groaning of the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God knows and He sees the fallen condition of man and it grieves His heart to watch the struggle every day against the powers and the principalities of the sinful, cursed world. The Spirit knows because He resides in us. You see, the Spirit of God is not something separate out there with no sense of understanding. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. And He lives in us. And He knows what we go through. He knows the level of frustration that we face. And He groans with us. He knows that we face the frustrations that we experience every day, so he's in constant intercession for us. He's constantly in intercession for us. If anyone understands the complete and total impact of sin in this creation, it is the Spirit of God. He fully understands how sin has distorted and destroyed his creation. He fully understands the fallen situation and the struggle that we face every day and he is in constant prayer for his people. It's a great thing, isn't it? The times that we just don't feel like praying, we're so frustrated. We feel like we get nothing from God. We pray, we sense no response, and we just got to give up. But the Holy Spirit continues his prayer for us on our behalf. How does the Spirit intercede for us? In verse 26 is this, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. Weakness has the idea of a want or lack of strength or capacity. It's the inability to produce results. That's where we are. We try our best and we put forth great effort. And you know what? There's no product to show for our work. Nothing. And we try and we try and we try. But the Scripture says that we're weak. We can't produce anything on our own. 
we try to do the right things, right? You're in a job situation, perhaps, that's causing you a lot of groaning, and you try to do the right things, and nothing happens. In fact, things seem to get worse. Things seem to get worse. And everything we try seems to fall apart. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we can't get the things done, He gets it done for us. That's one way that He intercedes. The other way is that the Spirit helps us in our prayers. Verse 26 and 27, But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all the hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us, for us believers, in harmony with God's own will. When we can't get the right words to say, the Spirit of God does. So our weakness is our inability to know and discern the will of God. That's the problem. We look at a given situation, we try to figure things out on our own, and it all messes up. It all messes up and goes to pieces. Because we don't know what the will of God is. We think we might. We try to do the right things the right way. But the bottom line is, we have the inability to know and discern the will of God as we try to make sense of how we are to respond and live in a world that is broken and infected by sin. The Spirit of God makes up for our deficiency and our lack of understanding. Because the Spirit of God, it's almost as if, Lord, this guy, this poor lady down here, they're trying. They don't know what to do. I know what they need to be doing. So will you help them out in that area? And he intercedes for us. That's the, um, that's the groaning of the Spirit. Got uh, just a couple more things I want to cover with you. This has been pretty dim stuff, hasn't it, so far? You know, creation's groaning. We're groaning. The Holy Spirit's groaning. Dark clouds, you know, on the horizon. Everything is bad. Ah, but then here comes verse 24 and 25. 24 and 25. Thanks be to God for His guarantee of hope. Guarantee of hope. Listen to verse 24. We were given this hope when we were saved. Well, the question is, what is the hope then? If that's what we were given, what is that hope? Well, we received it when we were saved. We became new creatures in Christ, and along with that came a very unique hope. He goes on to say in that passage that if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it, right? If you already possess what you're hoping for, then there's no need for hope anymore. But that's not the case here. He says, but if we look forward to something, remember that's the future tense idea of the redemption of who we are. We look forward to something we don't yet have. We must wait patiently and confidently, knowing that it's going to happen. Now, I want you to really understand this idea of hope, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the term itself. This hope is not some idea based on events and circumstances where we do not know the result or the outcome. At best, we can only hope that things will go our way. So here's the common fallacy among those who are thinking about biblical hope. One hope is like this. Well, I hope that I get a raise on my next paycheck. But you don't know what's going to happen, do you? All you can do is hope for it. But there's no certainty that your next paycheck is going to double the one you received two weeks earlier. But you can hope for it. 
or I hope that my child doesn't fail their test tomorrow. Well, is there a guarantee of that? you got kids in school, you know what that's about. You can't guarantee that, can you? You can hope for the best, but there's no certainty that the results are going to be what you're hoping for. Or you can say, I hope that Memphis beats Ole Miss on August 31st at 11 a.m. in a nationally televised game on ABC. I'm hoping. Come on, Tigers. Some of you are rebels in here. Go Ole Miss, you know. Or vice versa. I don't want to offend either side, you know. I'm a Longhorn fan. We hope. We want to pull for our team. We want to make sure, and man, if they can just get this and this, then we're going to win, but I just don't know. I'm not certain. That's what people, most people see hope as being. That's not the guarantee of hope that Paul talks about in verse 24 and 25. Listen to the difference here. The hope mentioned here in Romans 8 is not an uncertain hope in which the results are dependent on circumstances that we cannot control. Hope in Romans 8 is a favorable and confident, watch this now, expectation based on certainty. Okay? It's a confident expectation based on certainty. The outcome, in other words, has already been decided. That's what makes it certain. The outcome has already been decided. We are simply waiting for it to become reality. That's the difference. So many people place their hope in things incorrectly or inappropriately in the hope that this will happen. They hope that someone will come through for them. They hope that this occurs, but they simply don't know. And they look at God and the Spirit of God the same way in this hope that may or may not happen. That's not the uh, understanding of what hope is. It is expectation based on certainty. The outcome has already been decided. It's over. It's not going to change. The hope is there. All we have to do, what does the pastor say? Wait patiently for it. Titus in chapter 1 verse 2 talks about the same idea of the certainty of this This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life. It's a done deal. Which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world begins. That's hope. 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. God chose him, speaking of Christ, as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has revealed for your sake Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him great glory. You see, our our hope is certain. Hope is certain. If you're not sure about still kind of getting the feel of this, can I get you to go back in your mind to when you were a little kid on December 24th? Yeah, you know what's beneath that tree, don't you? All kinds of gifts down there, right? Here's the difference. The gift is already there. You can see it wrapped in the box. It's there. There's no doubt about that. And you've been waiting. Well, now, gosh, I was in a store the other day. They were going to start putting Christmas decorations up. In August? 
Some kids wait, it seems, for three or four months. And the parents put a present under the tree here and one there, and they see those, they just can't open it yet. But do they know that it's a certain thing? Absolutely they do. They want to get at night, and they look at it, and they'll they pick up, shake it a little bit, and, and their anticipation goes up. They just can't wait, counting down the days. If you understand that process, then you should understand what God is saying here. I have the gift for you. It's done. Just a little longer. Just a little longer. Persevere through the difficulties. Persevere. Because the gift is certain. So, let me speak on the last part here. That's the guarantee of hope. And let's speak with the last of the greatness of God's sovereignty. We'll be coming to verse 28 through 30 as we wrap up toward the end of our text here. And this is the verse here that everyone knows. You've heard it millions and, uh, of times. And a lot of people cling to this as their favorite verse. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. See, I don't, I'm not really sure that you can understand verse 28, 29, and 30 until we understand the situation of the curse and the groanings of creation and the Christian and the groanings of the Holy Spirit. When we understand that, then I think, oh, we are certain. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. You see, the frustration is always going to be there as long as we have breath in this world. But yet God causes all of those things to work together for good. Now, one of the mis misconceptions, I think, that, that we have as believers is that we misunderstand what the good is. We think it is the increase bonus on the paycheck. And that's not what the good is. We think the good is uh, getting a new car or getting a new house. Now, those things are okay, but that's not what the Lord is saying is the good in Romans 8, 28. The good is knowing this, that we will not always be in the condition that we're in. The good is that we are going to be like His Son. Future tense. The time is coming. And he, he God has taken all of these things that we go through in this world for the ultimate good of being like His Son. That God certainly, I don't, please don't misunderstand me, I'll say that God doesn't bless because He does in this world. And those are the droplets of grace that help us bear under a broken world. And in verse 29, He says, For God knew His people in advance. Now, God is sovereign. God, long before man was ever created, already knew who his people were going to be. God is omniscient. If he was not omniscient, then he wouldn't know this. He knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. That's the good. That's the good. You see, God in his omniscience knows every person that will hear the voice of the Spirit of God, drawing them to himself, and become believers in Christ. And God says, I have a plan for every person that's going to be in my family. I've got a plan for every one of them. And the plan is the same for all of them. And the plan is they will be like my son. That's the plan. And that's the goodness. That's the goodness. That's the hope.
that we cling to in a world that's dominated by sin and destruction. That's what we look forward to. So for God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them glory. So what we see in these verses here, the reason that our hope is certain, because the people, those who love God, and the process that God is causing everything to work together for good, and the purpose is that He chose them to become like His Son. So the certainty of hope is grounded in verse 30. It's grounded in verse 30. He chose us. He called us. He's given us right standing before God, and He has glorified us. And there is a future dimension of our salvation that we are eagerly waiting for. It's the last step. It's the last step that we have not experienced yet. We've been called. That's happened. We've been chosen. That's happened. We are in right standing before God. That has happened. But we have not been fully glorified yet. We have not taken our bodies, as Paul would say, this mortality must put on immortality. That has not occurred yet. And that's what we're waiting for. That's the future dimension of our salvation. We are eagerly waiting in anticipation and hope for this last stage at which we will be fully glorified. Guys, it's that hope that gets us through the junk that we have to go through every day. And if we have our sights set in this world, we're not going to make it. But if we have our sights set on the hope that God is bringing to us, the gift that we know is there with certainty, then we're going to bear up under it. And that's why it says way back in the first verse, yet what we suffer now is nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. You believe that or not? You believe it or not? So let me just kind of um, summarize this whole thing, bring it all back together, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to see how, to, how it works itself out. Creation, Christians, and the Holy Spirit are all groaning, longing to be delivered from a broken, sinful existence. We long to be glorified, an event that is certain to happen because we know that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And this is a closing reminder. There's a lot of things that could be brought out from this, but just one thing I want you to think about. If you're struggling, if your world right now is pretty bad, if it's falling apart, I want you to consider this. If you are in Christ... If you're in Christ, this broken and sinful world is as bad for you as it will ever be. You get that? If you are in Christ, this broken, sinful world is as bad for you as it will ever be. It cannot be any worse. Those of us who are in Christ and live in this world, this is as bad as it will ever be for us. It won't get any worse. It can only get what? 
better. Because we look forward, we'll see Him, and we'll be like Him in our lives. In the full glorification of who we are, we will see Him, and we'll be like Him. But don't get too sad. Don't get too sad. If this is as bad as it is for us, that's not too bad, is it? On the other hand, if you are not in Christ, now listen closely, if you're not in Christ, this broken and sinful world is as good, is as good for you as it will ever be. If you are not in Christ, this is as good as it gets. It doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. It only gets worse. That's the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So yeah, there's a lot of groaning going on. There's a lot of despair that goes on in creation, in us. Even the Holy Spirit of God is groaning for us. But there's a certain hope that we have in Christ Jesus. He's given us the gift, and it's certain. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Some of you will go to work tomorrow facing some problems that you already probably thought about even this last hour. Ugh, I don't want to see that person again. Mm. Maybe your relationship with the extended family is not that good. You've got a family reunion coming up. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it's all right, you know. It's okay to groan. It's okay to groan. Just don't forget the hope that it won't always be like that, okay? That's the encouraging part. Tough world. Tough world. But God's grace is greater. In a few moments, we'll uh, invite you to take uh, communion with us. But before we do that... Um, Ivy, if, uh, can I ask uh, y'all to come up and help me, please, with the uh, communion? Thank you. I want you to consider just a couple of things before you partake. You're welcome. If you're in Christ, we don't have closed communion, per se, but if you're in Christ and only you know that, you are certainly welcome to come participate in our communion. We have the bread, and uh, we have the wine. The wine is the dark juice and the, uh, uh, the non-alcoholic and the, the light juice. Uh, it's the grape juice. And, um, but I want you to consider this. If you're in Christ, it's a time to enjoy and be thankful for what he's done. This is the time to remember that the body that was broken, that's representative of the bread, and the blood that was shed that gives life, he did that to secure the certainty of our salvation. We should rejoice in that. If you're here and you're not in Christ, what I ask for you to do is to, to think about what's being said. Think about the truth of Romans chapter 8. Are you tired of living in a world that's cursed? Christ is the answer for that. He is the answer. And He gives us a hope for the future. So as, we, um, as you consider that today, I would invite you to come forward. Let's, um, let's pray, and then after we have a prayer, then uh, you can come forward for this. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for um, all the things that you, that you do for us. We never see, we never 
understand, we take for granted. Father, thank you most of all for Christ. Thank you for the hope of certainty that we will be um, not always in a situation that is uh, hurtful, destructive, frustrating. The groaning will cease in the days ahead when you will come back, sin will be removed, and you will reign. And we look forward to that. And we ask that you will continue your work, and we know that you will, that your spirit will continue groaning for us and interceding in prayer for us on our behalf because we are just too weak to make it happen. Thank you for that work. Thank you for all that you do for us. And as we take communion this morning, may we be mindful and thoughtful of the death and the burial and the resurrection of your Son that makes this all possible. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come.